Welcome everyone to this PD session on fundraising organized by the New South Wales ACT chapter. Uh, to quickly introduce myself, I'm Sona Swindley. I'm the Events and Training Manager at Educate Plus. I hope to see you all at our international conference coming up in Adelaide in September. Early, birds, uh, early bird rates close end of this month. So I recommend you book yourself before then. Uh, so just a few notes before we begin this morning. Please have your videos on, uh, your cameras on, so we can still have that face-to-face -face connection. Absolutely. Uh, there, this session is being recorded. However, you'll only be sent the PowerPoint presentation this afternoon by me. The actual recording will only be uploaded by the end of the month. Uh, please post all your questions as you think of them at, at the chat tab at the, at the bottom of your screen, and we'll get to them at the end when we open for questions and answers. Fantastic. Well, without further ado, let me hand you over to Dana to take this forward. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Sona, for the introduction and welcome everyone. Um, I'm Dana Kasimare. I'm the Director of Development at Redlands and also a member, committee member of the North South Wales Educate Plus chapter. And we have a great pleasure today to welcome Pamela Sutton-Ligon from Ask Right. Um, thank you, Pamela, so much for making the time in this very busy period for us, the fundraising um, practitioners, and we really appreciate your time. So just to give a uh, quick introduction to Pamela, she is a principal consultant at Ask Right. She is based in Melbourne, but currently luckily in Gold Coast. Uh, she um, focuses on advising schools, universities, and nonprofits organizations to raise funds, but also create um, efficient systems, processes, and capabilities that we all need for, um, for our work. Uh, I would also like to um, welcome Hannah Otwell and Jackie Dalton, who are the members of the North South Wales chapter. Can you make yourself visible, Jackie and Hannah? Um, Jackie is uh, the director of philanthropy at the French schools in Mittagong and has a long-term experience in philanthropy. Uh, Jackie is currently, as I said, in French schools, but before that she was a director of philanthropy in Eskom and before that at Sydney Uni, and she brings a lot of expertise and will share uh, with us uh, some of her um, practical examples or how she um, managed to close major gifts. And then we have Anna Oldwell. She brings a lot of experience from the tertiary education. She is the director of advancement at St. Andrews College here in Sydney uh, and will also share her um, expertise and experience with us. In the meantime, if you can, if you have any questions, please place them in the chat and we'll have the Q&A session after all the presentations. So I'll give um, give my um, microphone over to Pamela virtually. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Um, very happy to not be in Victoria this week, but I am going back on Saturday, so I will join the throng there. Um, but thank you. I really appreciate everyone coming today. Um, uh, we, we're I'm, I'm just going to open my presentation in a second. And I know that you were asked three questions when uh, you um, enrolled for the webinar. And so most of the, uh, the sort of majority wanted to know about approaching donors and, uh, and how to do it. So I have included um, a bit on that. So, but if there's anything else you'd like to know, obviously put it in the chat box or you're welcome to email me. So I'll kick off, I'll show my screen and we'll get going. Now, while I've got my screen open, I can't see the chat box. So um, if, if you, I'm not ignoring you. 
<laughs> um, but once we're finished, we'll, we'll have a look and I think um, others will read out any questions. I'm going to hide you all so I can't see your lovely reactions. Um, so um, we're talking about structuring your major gifts program. Um, a very little bit about AskRight, if you don't know who we are, we're a fundraising consultancy um, with the office here in Brisbane where I am today. And you're welcome to have a look at the website if you want to find out a bit more about us and what we do. Um, so today's presentation um, is, we're gonna cover a lot of information in a short amount of time. So obviously I won't go into everything in great detail, but you will get a taste across um, a whole uh, range of uh, sort of uh, content relating to major gifts and how you might structure your program. And we'll talk about a little bit about what happens in schools, um, education and facilities, um, talk through the fundraising cycle, talk about how we identify donors, cultivate them, um, how we ask for money, um, and then overcoming some of the objections that we often worry about, which stops us actually talking to people, resourcing our teams and stewardship, um, and a little bit about private ancillary funds, um, because I was asked uh, by a few people about well, how did that, does, is that something that we can access um, being a school? And then just pulling it all in together. Um, so I don't really need to tell you much about this. You already, many of you already know this, but I think it's just worth restating that compared with a charity, where often the entire entity is a DGR one entity. So any kind of gifts that they receive of $2 or more can be tax deductible. For schools, there's usually separate funds and they are often a building fund, a library fund, a scholarship fund. And so we end up with donations that need to fit into these buckets. And sometimes that can feel a bit restrictive and we need to be creative in the way that we utilize those funds. And often they're underutilized, um, particularly building funds when there's no capital campaign in place. Um, often you're just getting donations that are um, added to fee statements. So um, there's opportunities for us to use these funds all through the year and to be as creative as we can in terms of what goes into a building fund, what goes into a library fund, what goes into a scholarship um, fund. Um, in schools, uh, we've often got parents and volunteers fundraising. Now we'll have volunteers in charities as well, but we, we don't have a parent body. Um, so um, you've, you've got the benefit of, of a very, um, well-connected constituency, community of people who care about the organisation, they have their children at the school, um, so they, you know, they want to make sure the school does well now and in the future. Some people want to support the school for the children who are there now, but many people want to support a school for what will happen in the future. It might be their grandchildren who are going to that school, have got a sense of paying it forward. And we're hearing a lot from a, when I speak to um, many of the parents at different schools that I hear this phrase a lot, I want to pay it forward. I want to show some gratitude for the people who supported the school in the past and made it what it is today so my children can benefit from it. So we've got this whole different type of constituency that um, you don't have in a regular charity environment, even though you have some very loyal supporters for charities. Um, the other thing is about what we... Um, what we want to, how we want to talk about how we fundraise for a school or, or, or a university or any kind of education facility. In a charity, you often talk about need. You know, there's great need. We don't have, we, it's what we don't have. We're, we've got terrible problems to solve. You know, it might be 
um, hunger or um, the effects of climate change or even bushfires. These, these are very different types of needs that we're talking about than when you're, you want to build a new science lab at your school or you want to build a new health and wellbeing centre. Um, you need to take a different type of positioning than you would if you were going out with a very much a, you know, uh, we, we, have, we have a lack that we're trying to fill. Often schools talk about, well, we're actually great, but we want to be better. So these are quite different types of um, approaches than you would take with a charity. Everyone has limited fundraising resources, but um, in recent research that Ask Right did um, with the Alliance of Girls Schools, we found that schools are even have even fewer limited, uh, direct dedicated fundraising resources. In fact, one was the average, so one person. And often that person isn't really that dedicated. You know, they might get pulled off that work to do anything, you know, from working on reception to, um, to doing alumni, to do very important work, but it takes them away from their focus on fundraising and philanthropy. Um, so this seems to be a, a little bit of a trend in some schools, particularly girls' schools, we found. Um, and fundraising and philanthropy can be capital campaign or personality driven. So what that means is you get a big campaign, everybody wants to build a new building. So lots of energy and effort goes into rebuilding the foundation committees, um, getting the council on board, getting the parent body involved. We build the building and then the fund fundraising dies off. And, and that might go into a hiatus until we've got another building or another um, opportunity. So how do we keep these, this going when there's not a major building to build, there's not a major project, you still want to have your fundraising continuing. Um, and, or there could be a very strong personality, let's say the, the chair of a foundation board, who really drives it or a really, in, really interested um, principal who says, yes, I want to do this. So the fundraising can be quite driven by situations or people. And we want to try and flatten this out so that your, your, your fundraising builds year on year and you're, and you're not so taken, um, taken by surprise when you've got a big project. So why would we seek major gifts? Um, it really does help to build enduring relationships. Um, often people want to show gratitude for what, for, for what they believe has been a wonderful experience. I was watching a, a, a seminar um, about uh, uh, American hospitals and how they integrate their philanthropic support right through to their doctors. You know, so the doctors might identify patients who really want to show gratitude for the service and the medical care that they received. And at first, I thought this was a little bit of a kind of, you know, American ease. But in fact, I think it's a really lovely idea that people do want to show gratitude. They, they really appreciate sometimes what they've been given. And philanthropy gives that opportunity, particularly major philanthropy, to show gratitude for what you or your children or your family have received from the institution. And it's absolutely essential for major campaigns. You, you really can't drive large um, capital campaigns without major gifts. And, you know, in, in, and for you, a major gift might be $2,500. For other, others, it might be $25,000 or $250,000. Um, but essentially, if you want to build a major, you know, multi-million dollar building, then you're going to need a lot, large, sometimes transformational gifts. So there's those six-figure gifts. 
Um, and the more mature the fundraising is, the higher the average gift is likely to be. So if you let your fundraising kind of drop away, then you've got to rebuild those relationships again and rebuild the size of those gifts. So if you can continually build, if you imagine rather than a sawtooth roof, you've actually got a stepping stone, you know, you're stepping up and you're constantly building your internal capacity, then you're more likely to increase the size of your major gifts. And it doesn't matter if you're currently thinking, oh, my major gifts are $500. That doesn't matter. You can build that over time if you build loyalty and you build these enduring relationships because all of this is relationship driven. So structuring your major gifts program, I mean, there are some basic things that I think sometimes get missed. And that really is around policies and procedures and delegation and decision making. You know, how much can I spend without asking anybody? Now, that is, seems to be a really simple thing, but often can hold you back. You know, can I hire a copywriter? Can I spend $50 buying some food for an event? You know, where are the policies and procedures that say we accept these types of gifts? We enter into these types of partnerships. We enter our data in a certain way. All of this can be looked at regardless of whether you're in the middle of a, preferably before you're in the middle of a campaign. Um, but these are really good things to sort out early before you're, you don't want the donor sitting outside the door with their check in their hand while you're figuring out whether or not you can accept the gift. So um, do you give naming rights for buildings? You know, these are all things that you can work out in advance to help you structure your major gifts program. And as I say, delegations, what can you spend and what can you receive? You know, if someone offers you a, a donation of $50,000, can you make decisions yourself about how that gift is managed? Or do you have to ask and who do you have to ask? So again, working out these delegations as early as possible is, is really helpful to any kind of fundraising program, but particularly your major gifts program where people don't hang about. If you can't manage the gift that they're offering to you, then they might offer it to someone else. So who's on your team? You know, it's really important that you know who's going to help me get this done. You know, who's going to enter the data? Who's going to make the calls? Who's going to um, help me put my um, case for support together? So working, again, working this out in advance, these are things you, you don't want or have to do in the midst of a campaign. Um, and then who can you ask? You know, working out who are the donors who are most likely to be on my list? And what do I know about them? We'll come to that in a minute. And who's likely to help me ask them for the gift? And there's an old saying, you know, who's the best person to ask for the donation? And some people will say it's the fundraising manager. And others would say the best person to ask is the person most likely to get a yes. So it's working through who's going to help me do this. You clearly can't do it all on your own. Um, who, how, do we, how do we work this out and working that out in advance? Then creating a development plan around that, building your case for support. What do we want the money for? By when? For what? You know, who's, what sort of investment are we going to have from the, from the organisation and what do we need to find from philanthropy? What's, what sort of government funding are we having? You know, building that, that, that mission and vision that you can share with your donors. And then budgets. I often hear education fundraisers say, I don't know what my budget is. I don't know how much I can spend. So it is really, you know, in, in a, in a uh, commercial environment, you, you wouldn't hear that. In a charity, you hear it less, but in schools, you hear it more. So how much can I spend? How much do I need to raise? What is my delegation? 
And if and those things really help you feel like you've got some control and authority over your, your major gifts and your fundraising program. So many of you would have seen the, the fundraising cycle, some call it moves management, and where we're trying to move our donors through this cycle, and it's a continuing cycle. And it starts very much with prospect research. So developing a list of prospective donors, individuals, corporations, foundations, who are we going to ask? Who's on our list? People who've already given, people who gave a long time ago, alumni, who are they? So how do we build this list? And really good if you've got a CRM, please try to avoid the dreaded Excel spreadsheet. But if you have to, then do it in the best way that it's going to allow you to keep track of, of who you're talking to. Your case statement, what is it that you want the money for? And you might have multiple projects that you need to, you want to raise money for over a period of time. You know, your, your, your campus may have a campus plan that's over 10 years, but you, you might just be focusing on the next two or three. So you're building your development plan after you've identified your prospect, your prospects, you're qualifying them, come to that in a moment, you're cultivating, you're starting to build relationships, and then you're moving to solicitation, asking for the gift, and then stewarding that person so that they continue to be part of your constituency and part of your relationship with the organisation. So um, these are all supported by your volunteer involvement, the leadership and management of your school or college, and the ethics and accountability of your organization. So these all work together to start, again, if you have that vision of that stepping stone, building this great capacity internally, which helps you build your, your um, environment of philanthropy. So if you're identifying um, potential prospects, you might wanna look at, this is Henry Rosso's, The Principles of Fundraising. It's an inter very interesting um, source. Um, so you're starting to build a profile of your prospect um, and you, you'd include all of these things, anything you can find available, available publicly, um, but also something called LIC, which is the link to the organization, interest in your cause and capacity to give. LIC, link, interest, capacity to give. Now, if someone, what we tend to do is look at the last letter, the C, the capacity to give. And that is not enough for a qualified prospect. We want to know that they care about what we do and that they have some link to the organization. So the foundation chair knows them or this kids went to the school or they're an alumni or any of those connections. And you'll see that this chart looks at its concentric circles. So the people in the middle are those most likely to help you. As you move out, um, you, get, uh, you get further away from the core of the organization. Um, so if you imagine you've got um, alumni around the edge there, um, you've got parents, um, these are all the people that you want to be talking to. And the further out you go, these people have less and less connection to you as an organisation. So they might have capacity, but do they care about your entity? Do they care about what you're trying to achieve? So I would rather start, you know, if someone has interest and connection, can I then look at well, what really is their capacity? Because they're the people who are most likely to, to help me achieve my goal. Talking about private ancillary funds, so more and more these, this structured philanthropy is becoming more and more important. And 20% uh, now of high value gifts are coming through structured philanthropy. So people are not necessarily sort of just deciding, you know, arbitrarily, they're thinking about their philanthropy and how that they might contribute. So these PAFs can only distribute to DGR1 entities or funds. Um, there's 
a considerable number of them and they're growing all the time and they must distribute 5% of their earnings every year at least. And at the moment, some of them are giving more because they've had that dispensation to distribute more. So this is an area that's worth looking at, not just because it's a source of revenue, but how many of your prospects have their own paths? Because that's how they'll want to give, quite possibly. So understanding um, if any of your prospects, parents are directors of private ancillary funds helps you understand that they have quite a structured thinking about philanthropy, which others may not. Um, so when you're thinking about cultivation solicitation, um, you really need to think about what do I know about the people I have now? What do I know? Who gives me the largest gifts? Who gave, when was the last time they gave? So data is really important to us. How do we analyze what we know about our current and prospective donors? Um, we know far more than, than we think. We've got a lot more information than we think. It might be scattered in different databases or Excel spreadsheets or folders or people's heads but somehow you've got to get it out get it in one place because that's how we're going to build this 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 idea of who our donor is our prospect is so that we can start to think about well how are we going to approach them um, and we, so you're going from perhaps a stage where people are not really very aware of what we're doing we want to build their interest build their trust in what we're doing their experience with the organization get them involved so they've got some ownership they care about the project and then we're going to ask them for a, a donation um, and i just put this in you know most this is the bit everyone seems a bit terrified of you know in fact it's a really wonderful experience when someone says yes to you um, and I've, I think it's transformational, not just for the donor, but for the, for the asker as well. And I, and I wouldn't underestimate it. It's a really positive thing to do. Um, and when you ask for that gift, you know, do ask for it quite specifically for what you want and then don't say anything. You know, if the donor's sitting there nodding and thinking, don't feel like you must jump in and go, well, you know, just give me half. It's okay. <laughs> you know, this is the moment where you let the donor get to the point where they want to make a decision. And all of this is going to work and they're more likely to say yes if you've got the right project that aligns with their passion and interest that they that the right is you're asking for the right amount you know you're not asking someone who's only ever given a gift and has the capacity to give five thousand dollars you're not asking them for five hundred thousand um, dollars the right person is doing the asking now if they really care about the principle then the principle perhaps needs to be in the room at the very least you know, even if they don't want to make the ask. But, you know, it does make a difference who makes the ask. And is it the right time? You've done enough research to understand that, you know, their business isn't closing down or, you know, they're, they're about to go overseas, you know. You know, be, be, think about when is the right time to ask. And I, rehearsing is so important. Sit down with someone who maybe doesn't even know much about fundraising and practice your ask. Practice your ask. And, to, and let them come up with all the kinds of objections that you are hoping the donor won't say and so that you're ready with an answer. So if you, before you go out and see it, if you, you're about to go out and see a donor, you've done all your research, you can practice overcoming some of these objective, objections. You know, you can write down what's the worst thing that they could say to me, apart from no, when we get to that. And um, what else could they say? You know, you're asking too much. Um, oh, I don't think it will go to the project. Uh, we've got you know, two kids at school or university. We can't afford it right now. You know, why don't you ask other people and come back to me after they've said yes? 
you know, how are you going to do, you want to be ready to answer those questions straight away. And if you've got any skeletons that you think might come up, yeah, but what happened with that principle 20 years ago when you need to have all that ready so that you can answer those questions. And it help, it gives you confidence. These questions may never come up, but especially if you've done your research, but if you can prepare yourself, plan, and, and you can also do this with other people who might be in the room, your other volunteers, the more you can practice, you will overcome your nerves and this will become second nature to you. Um, and no is not the end. You know, invariably when someone says no, more likely means not now. You've either got the, the project wrong or they're not quite ready for it or the amount is not quite right. So you can start to kind of unpack, well, what does that mean? What does that no mean? But what if you get a yes? You know, we all worry about getting a no, but often we get a yes. And so what happens then? You know, then we need to move into more of a, in our, you know, uh, governance, not governance, um, our uh, role of stewardship so that we can look after and make sure these donors get exactly what we said we were going to do when we were in that cultivation and solicitation phase. And, and stewardship is about gratitude both ways. You know, as I said, donors, often feel great gratitude to the organisations they want to support. You know, I'm a big supporter of BirdLife Australia, and I feel enormous gratitude that this organisation actually exists because nobody else is doing what they do. So it gives me great pleasure to support them because I can't do it, but they can. And so it's thinking about this both ways. So even if your donor says no, you still need a stewardship plan. That is not the time to drop them. That is the time to say, okay, Let's have a think about how we could re-engage with this person. How are we going to, you know, get them, talk to them about either another project or this project in a different way. So we need a stewardship plan for both yeses and noes because we want to thank people often. We don't thank people enough. We think we do, but we don't. And people, donors will say, I don't want to be thanked, but they do. <laughs> they really do. So we need to thank people often. And then we need to do some practical things like follow up on pledges. If someone has made a multi-year pledge, you want to make sure multi pledges over this course of a year, we want to make sure that we follow up. We've got it in a system where we know that Mr. Smith is giving $50,000 a year for three years and make sure that whatever happens, the organization can do that follow up. Even if you're not there, that that is in a system that other people know about. And we, it's transparent and we know. So, you know, things you can do is create dashboards with your pledges in it, you know, your, your targets, the amount of gifts, who the donors are. These sorts of things will help you give transparency to your major gifts program and help others continue the work. If Even if you've changed jobs or you've done something, doing something different in the organisation, it just gives that transparency. And don't forget to ask again, because someone has given once is a really good reason why they'll probably give to you again. Um, when a, you make a donation to a charity, uh, the, 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 the sort of industry wisdom is that's the best time to ask for a second gift. So I, when I worked for Oxfam, I would send out a thank you letter with an ask. And invariably, I would, I would get a smaller response, but I would certainly get a response of a second gift. So, you know, it's a circle. It is very much a circle. So resources, you need dedicated resources. It really is important to have skilled people who can do the work that you need right now and in the future. And that requires clear job descriptions and KPIs and keeping those people focused on the work that you want them to do. Easier said than done, I absolutely understand. 
Um, but if you can, this is going to help you deliver a, a better outcome. But at the end of the day, you have to use what's available. You know, if you've got one person part-time, then make the best use of those resources that you can. And, like, and you do that through having a plan and having really clear job descriptions so that they know what it is they're doing when they come in on that day. Um, capture your data in a dedicated system, like I said, so that other people can see it. You know, if you've got people job sharing, got people dropping in and out of roles, if it's in a place where everyone can see it, it does make life much easier. And like I said at the beginning, preparing your policies, your procedures, your case for support, you can start to produce those materials quite early so that everyone knows this is how we do it here. You may do it differently somewhere else, but this is how we do it here and it's based on best practice. So pulling it all together, really get to know your data, your prospects, your donors. You know, spend some time, even if you don't think you're going to do any fundraising anytime soon, get in there and start looking at, well, who have I got? Who's on my list? Who's my alumni? And start to see how you could build relationships with them. Build relationships with key volunteers. If you've got a couple of parents, and I know that you do, who love to do fundraising in some way, shape or form, get to know them. If you've got a couple of board members who are chomping at the bit to get out there and do something, how do you engage with them and get them involved? Talk to your principal, you know, your key staff. They might need a bit of convincing that this is where we're going to go. But that's our role, I believe, as fundraisers, to cultivate that environment of philanthropy and it doesn't you know doesn't begin when someone says we're going to do a big campaign it starts before that maximize your resources you know i would suggest that if you just have a really limited resource an hour a day is better than five hours once a week they forget what they're doing from one week to the next so try and get somebody working on your fundraising every day try and get you working on your fundraising every day if it's your job brilliant if that's you've got dedicated resources fantastic so maximize that out keep people moving forward small milestones that move us forward um, so i think Whatever resources you have, make them as single-minded as possible. Capture your results, compare them with what you thought you'd do, improve it and repeat it. Appeals, annual appeals are really good for that. Major gift asks are really good for that. Can I get my average gift up? Can I talk to more people? And then use those results to build a business case for further resources. If you've done a really good job and you've only got half a person four times, you know, half the year, then what could you do can you build a case to say, look, if you gave me two people, I could do this. And in that way, you start to build your capacity, build your resources based on the results that you deliver. And you build a culture of philanthropy. And remembering, you know, it's a long game. So I've given you a whole lot of information in a very short period of time. Um, but uh, we've got a few free booklets. You're very welcome to contact me if you'd like any of them. Um, and uh, I'm happy, very happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Pamela. Um, I'm now going to share with you the story of a major gift that we've recently had uh, come across and what that process was. I'm following a process that I learned in a tertiary environment about the normal process for securing a major gift, but really it has transferred into the school environment equally as well. So, um, so it is, as Pamela said, it's that identifying people who have the linkage and the interest and most importantly the capacity and I think the more engaged uh, your potential donors are with the school and if they've got the capacity the more likely you are to get a major gift. 
Um, for me, uh, when I'm starting off um, meeting someone, it all comes down to building trust and rapport. From trust and rapport, giving will come. Um, and ideally, trying to identify what the donor's passion is because then you can craft a gift around something they feel passionately about. Um, you'll learn about what they really want to do in a, in a series of one-on-one -on -one meetings. And um, I once learned this very important phrase, and it's very true. People give to institutions that meet needs, not institutions that have needs. So if you've identified what their passion is and you're lucky enough to be able to craft a gift around that, that's great. So we're about to go into a capital campaign later this year and we're going to create a comprehensive campaign. So we are going to have a building project in there, but we will also have a bursary option because some people do not want to give to buildings. Their passion is bursaries. And from that, you can get significant gifts. Um, once I've identified what someone's passion is and I understand it, um, I ideally then move towards a formal proposal. And by that, I don't mean a Word document, something that's crafted up in InDesign that's beautiful. Um, and um, if the donor then says yes to what we've agreed, we secure that with uh, an agreement for acceptance of gift. So I'll talk you through uh, one gift that we had recently. So uh, the donors are very closely connected to the school. One of them was a, a past governor, um, a company member, which is uh, quite a big thing at the school, past parents, current grandparents, and significant capacity. However, their previous gifts had actually been relatively small. And part of that was because previously at my school, when people wanted to make a big donation, and this one was going to be for the bursary fund, they were told um, it's going into a big pot, trust us, we'll take care of it. So once they'd made their donation, they didn't know where it went, if it went to a particular girl, and they certainly never got any stewardship, any feedback about the impact of their gift. Because yes, once you've, you've signed up the gift, then the stewardship afterwards saying thank you, thank you, thank you, and letting them know about the impact of their gift is so important. Anyway, so things have changed at our school now, and you are able to direct a gift to a particular girl, and um, you will get stewardship, you will get feedback about how that student is enjoying her time at the school once a year. Um, and the feedback we've had from uh, donors who've had that stewardship is, is, has been fantastic. So um, I arrived here in 2019. I'd spent a lot of time building trust and rapport with these particular people. And when they knew that things had changed here and they could direct their gift to a particular girl, uh, in January last year, January 2020, so remembering this is our COVID year, um, I was on the phone and they said, look, Jackie, we would be interested in directing a gift to a particular girl. We'd love to hear more about it. Um, so we had a series of conversations and, and what came out was they want their gift to go to a rural student who really would not otherwise have had the chance to come to French and they were the key drivers. Um, my first face-to-face -face meeting after we'd had those telephone conversations um, was on Wednesday the 17th of March last year. So you, you can imagine where we're at. Um, it was the last face-to-face -face meeting we'd had for, we were going to have for a while. I didn't know that at that point. However, um, another thing I learned a few years ago, when I go into a meeting like this, I always write down the three key things that I want out of that meeting. Because 
when I first started off and I'd be having major gift meetings and I'd go in and we'd talk about things and I'd come out and I'd think, oh, well, what was that? Where did we go? Did I get what I wanted? So I now write down the three key things that I want and I, it will happen if you've, if you've focused. So um, my three key things for that meeting were I wanted to confirm all the parameters as I understood them to make sure I was right. Um, I wanted to give the donors confidence that I had listened to them, I'd understood, and that we would deliver on what we said. And most importantly, I wanted to come out of that meeting with um, a proposal to be written. So um, we discussed the whole meeting. We knew I knew they were excited by the gift. And so when I'm ready to make the question about the proposal, what I say is I finished the meeting by saying, so with your permission, could I put what we've discussed into a proposal? And without a doubt, they say, yes, I have never, ever had someone say no to that. Yes, we'd love that. That would be fantastic. And proposals are, are quite powerful if, you know, they're written, they're in InDesign, the donor's name is on it, blah, blah. So from there on, we had a, a series of phone calls. We could no longer meet face to face. The proposal was sent to them in July and um, they loved it. Uh, we finally got to our next face-to-face -face meeting in September and, yes, it was a yes for this particular gift. Um, and th this gift is well in excess of $200,000. Now, their giving prior to that was minimal. So um, we said, yes, we love the proposal. I said, okay, what I will do now is I'll prepare an agreement for acceptance of gift. And the purpose of that document is basically for the donor to know we've listened, here are the key elements of the gift, we sign it, someone seconds that, they sign it, someone witnesses that, and it's written down and they know we've understood, it's written down and we've all signed. Um, and, you know, I'm really, really excited by this gift. There's a little girl starting at this school next year and she is the most amazing kid and she really would not have otherwise been here. And I'm so excited for them. And I'm excited for me too, because I'm going to get so much joy when she arrives next year as a little girl in year seven and to see her graduate at the end of that. It's going to be, that's what I love. That's what I love about my job. So, so that's my process normally for a major gift. That said, I'm just going to share a very quick story about a gift that came across two weeks ago. So on Thursday, the 20th of May, we launched our Bequest Society. It was fabulous. We had 160 people in the room. Everyone was very excited. Um, since that time, I've had, uh, it's called the Winifred West Legacy. And we've called people who've made a bequest custodians of the Winifred West Legacy. So I've had nine new custodians since the meeting. However, at the end of the lunch, um, a, a, one of our guests tapped me on the shoulder and he said to me, Jackie, we're not interested in bequests. We want to get joy out of our living during our lifetime. And on the spot, he made me the offer of a gift, which is staggering. Um, we've written the proposal, we've written the gift agreement, and we're about to go ahead. So it's interesting. I've never had that happen in my life before in major gifts. So not everything is a cookie cutter. There's no template. Every gift is bespoke. And I think you just have to um, adapt to each one. And I think Hannah's now going to share a story of a major gift from her. 
Awesome. Thank you, Jackie. I loved hearing that one. I love hearing how other people get their major gifts. So today I wanted to share a story about a major gift I actually received back in 2018, but it's led to two new major gifts from the same donor family um, and kind of highlights the idea around like really building that relationship with your donor um, and stewarding them. So in terms of identifying them, kind of the same as everyone else, um, they came up in a wealth screen that was in a document before I even arrived as director. And then um, I was able to do a Google search, LinkedIn, and then talk to our principal about this particular family. And for context, it's two families. They've had the children come through. They're now young alumni. And then the parents loved coming to college events. Um, so I had all of that information there at my fingertips. So I did a bit more research. Kind of worked out oh well, they've got a family foundation great what else do they give to i could see that they give to science medical health and education okay great good so i put together a little um uh, i call them prospect management plans where i sort of map out kind of what my goal is for this particular prospect and i was like okay cool that's there that all went out the window um, because I then met one of the um, children who's now a young alumni at one of our young alumni events. And I'd seen his name on the guest list. So I said to the counsellor, who's also a young alum, um, can you introduce me to him on the night? She said, yeah, of course, no worries. I actually want to introduce you to him anyway because he's doing this crazy fundraising challenge and I want you to write a story about him. I was like, cool, we can do that. That's great. That's something that we want to share with our community. So already we're going, well, we're going into this being able to help them with something they want to do and hopefully, you know, they might be interested in helping us in some way. So I met him at the event, hit it off. He's lovely. Um, and the interesting thing is he didn't know my team existed. So I was able to explain that and educate him a little bit and actually make him realize that we have a scholarships program. And he was like, oh, I didn't know this. And this is exciting. Oh, can we talk more about that? So with his permission, it was then the doors open to go, all right, well, can I please send you some more information? Can we have a chat about that? So then a week or two later, we had a phone call that was followed then by a face to face meeting. And we got to the stage where I could put together a proposal again, just a word document outlining what what we could do and what we were looking for and um, sort of two giving levels as well, sort of going a full scholarship and a half scholarship. Um, just to test the waters because I wasn't entirely sure where they sat on the on the range, but we went with that. That went off to the family foundation meeting, came back with a few questions, back and forth with that. Always give them, um, I find like more detail is better so that they feel assured that you know what you're doing and the ins and outs, particularly as Pamela was saying, when their um, family foundations, they have a structured approach. They're really keen on um, making sure that their governance is 100% um, in line with everything. So making sure that they had all the answers before then we went and moved to a gift agreement. And they said, yep, that's great. Wonderful. So that was a three-year um, half-fee scholarship. And from there, then the mother of one of the families ended up on our foundation board because she came along to things, went, oh, well, you know, I, I would like to be involved in this. I'm, I'm interested in this um, we've had the, the young man, we shared his story, he's come back to professional development events. And then the other stewardship things, you know, we, we sent them a nice letter, we send them an annual report, we send them an annual thank you letter from the principal and the student themselves. And I went a, a little bit further with this, this particular family, I um, ended up getting tickets for me and the scholarship recipient 
to go to one of the young man's fundraising events for his challenge. So we dressed up in black tie. We went, we met the whole family from all over Australia. So they really loved that. They loved meeting their recipient and, you know, having photos and being on the dance floor with her was really cool and they keep in touch now. So that's that's how that first gift has happened. And then having the, the mother on our foundation board, she really understands what we're trying to do with our scholarships program. And then at the end of last year, we had a conversation because she ended up catching up with me every two or three months just for lunch and a coffee because she's on the foundation board, wants to know what's going on. And she said, hmm, we don't give a lot of scholarships just to female students, do we? And I said, no, we have none that are just for female students. So armed with that information, she goes away, comes back, could we do this? And I, you know, listen, okay, what are you thinking? She wants to do a scholarship for a female undergraduate student um, in the area of STEM and always financially means tested. So it's helping someone um, who couldn't have the experience at university and college um, to come and do that um, if they couldn't afford it. So she organised that. We, we Same thing, proposal, gift agreement, got that scholarship across the line and um, that student's now come into college, that new, new scholarship recipient. They're going to meet them um, later this year. They couldn't come along to the dinner that's on tonight just because of scheduling commitments. Um, but then just in, in sort of catching up and touching base with her about different other things, um, she said, oh, by the way, we're also looking, we're going to renew that first scholarship for another three years. We just have to wait to do that formally at the next foundation board meeting. So um, what started out as a $50,000 gift um, is now going to be $180,000 worth of um, gifts from this one family who we've just kept the touch points and kept them involved and, and listened to what they wanted to be involved in and met them halfway. So and, and sometimes going a little bit further, like the fundraising event that we went to, sure, it was black tie, but it took my whole weekend, you know. Um, I was there from whatever time getting ready to the late evening time talking to the granddad who'd come over from WA. So sometimes, you know, if you if you put in that effort, um, usually you will get the rewards from it. So that's my little story. Thank you both, Jackie and Hannah. I think it's uh, fascinating. And thank you, Pamela, for a terrific presentation. I think it gave us a lot of uh, Great thoughts, but also I think a great pathway how to think about and how to structure our um, uh, resources uh, and capabilities to really um, be able to um, uh, close major gifts and um, you know um, think about in the future also what else we need to put in place. And I think Jackie um, had a terrific uh, um, presentation in terms of how she went about it and how, what a long process also indicated how you know how long long um uh, long in the future we have to think as well so uh, there's actually a question jackie for you um how did you choose the people who attended the big west society launch okay um i have been very fortunate to have a wonderful quest committee they are four people who've been very senior members of our community past chairs of the board of governors past conveners of company four people who are just wonderful and in the lead up to launching, um, they said, look, we've got one shot at this. Let's make it as big as we can get key people in the room. So our invitation list was past and current governors of the school, past and current directors of foundation, past and current company members, 
current custodians of uh, people who currently made a bequest to the school. We only had 13 to start with. Um, past head girls of the school, um, just key dignitaries. And we wound up with an invitation list of 360, bearing in mind that some of those people, um, their, their association with the school finished 20 years ago, so our data was really out of date. Some people had split up, some people were dead. So I actually rang every... We wound up with a list of 360 only being able to have about... 160 or 180 in the room and um, so I rang every single person there. hi I'm Jackie just making sure we've got our data for you correct so it was an incredible relationship building exercise um, people appreciated it we did not get one thing wrong in sending out the letter so we had an incredible take up um, 160 people in the room and people who are highly engaged with the school even though that that time might, might have happened some time ago um, and it was also uh, everyone's first chance to hear from our new head of school. So I'm sure that that was a big, a big draw cut as well. And Jackie, how did you structure the event? Who was actually speaking? And um... Um, Well, we initially were going to hold it at New South Wales State Parliament House in Sydney, uh, but their COVID rules are still so tight that because of 1.5 metre social distancing, they will only allow 18 tables of four in the room. So that was never going to work. So we cancelled that and had it down here in the Highlands at a place called Bendoolies at their stables venue, which is their wedding venue, which is stunningly beautiful, but could manage 180, maximum 200 in the room. Um, and in terms of, so it was off-site, so we brought Frensham to the event. The, the event was opened with our madrigals, which are our extraordinary choir. People were crying when they were singing so they sang a beautiful Aretha Franklin number which was wow and then they sang Grace which was incredible um, our chair of the board of governors spoke our new head spoke and our chair of foundation spoke and um, everyone just loved the event it was it went off really well thank you um, I'll open the floor to other questions if um, you want to just jump in You're all being very quiet and polite. <laughs> yeah, we have a few more minutes. I think we have five more minutes for questions. Feel free not, to unmute yourselves if you like, if you don't want to type out a big question. Can I ask, uh, can I ask a question? I, uh, thank, thanks for your uh, time, everyone. I just wanted to ask, have you had challenges with creating a sort of a culture of accountability because um, uh, I, I think it's particularly important with major gifts to be able to sort of say look we, we're going to deliver on this outcome and and this is how we've done it but it's just for, for us I think that's a, a challenge of rather than saying look give to the general part and trust us um, uh, that, that's the sort of the feedback we've had is encouraging people to give to a general pot but knowing that for major gifts particularly we need to have those uh, those key deliverables, uh, wanting to know if, how, how you go about um, overcoming that organisationally. Thank you, Michael. Pamela, would you like to answer that? So the question was around uh, developing that transparency within the organisation, is that right? So I think, you know, these things take time, but it is based on trust. So the more information that you have available about 
what your goals are, what you're raising the money for, um, that, that certainly helps. Um, having those um, agreements around how we use gifts. So, you know, where do I, if we get a bequest, where does it go? You know, being able to talk about those things with your leadership prior to actually having the gift sitting there is really helpful. And that enables us all to say, well, when we get a, if we get an untied bequest, it goes here. Um, obviously, you get a tied bequest. This is how we deal with it. This is the sorts of things we will accept. Um, it just helps to, it, the more you can talk about it without the pressure of a donor, as an actual donor situation, the more likely you are to get agreement and clarity around how do we do it here. Um, and then that's something you can then communicate more clearly through to your donors. And of course, you know, there, there are times when you want to uh, uh, enable what the donors needs to be met in the sense that they want to fund a particular um, bursary, for instance. But there might be occasions when that doesn't suit you. You know, it really isn't the right sort of bursary for the way they want to structure it. it might be too limiting, made feel that you won't be able to get enough people to come along to, to, to apply for it. So it's having that transparency so that you can go back and have that conversation with the donor. So, well, actually, you know, this is, these are some of the ways that we would suggest will, would be more successful for you and for the school. Um, so I, I think it is about having those internal conversations, getting that clear so that you can then share that with your donors. Is, is that, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, um, I mean, it sounds almost, I was thinking that, have you ever had this situation where uh, actually facing a, a, a gift and um, uh, does that, then it's crunch time. You're, you're, you're saying that don't wait for crunch time to discuss, have Absolutely. policies, have procedures planned. So I'll give you an example of a corporate partnership arrangement, which I don't recommend this process, right? So um, I was working for a charity, charity and uh, we had a corporate partnership policy that excluded anyone engaged with tobacco, anyone engaged with gaming, gambling, you know, the usual kind of no's. Um, and, uh, but we didn't say anything about alcohol. And we often had sponsors for our events that provided wine. Um, so a beer sponsor came along and wanted to give a considerable amount of money to sponsor a major part of the organization. And suddenly the board had a problem with a beer sponsor. And there wasn't, that problem didn't exist before. Now, when you've got the donor or the sponsor sitting in the back room saying, here's a quarter of a million dollars, and the board saying, we don't want to take it, um, that's not a great situation. So we, we kept the, the, the sponsor waiting while we worked it all out and then said no, because we didn't have a way to resolve it. That, that, would, that could mean that we kept the sponsor and, and, and met our strategy. So in the end, long after the sponsor had gone, we, we split the strategy to say we'll accept wine for, you know, and alcohol for adult events. But because the, the, it, it was a, a zoo and the zoo was a G-rated environment, they didn't want to have any beer sponsors, even though they, they sold beer on the premises. So these things can become quite complex, but the more that you can try to anticipate what might come up and get it into your policies and procedures, that, that you might on occasion bend them, but at least you know what they are. So that was a very painful experience and it taught me a big lesson. Jackie or Hannah, is there anything else you would like to um, add to this question and discussion? 
Um, I, I look, we've I came to an environment here where um, donors were basically not given any feedback about their gifts, and we've we've spent the best part of two years of um, allowing gifts to be given to a particular girl, giving donors confidence that they will. Learn, learn about the impact of their gift and be thanked. And um, it's just been a slow process. It's what we do now. We have a very big commitment to donor relations. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really important, Jackie, talking about the impact. I think the impact of the gift. Yeah, I would just add that um, I guess in our roles, we also act kind of as educators for our councils, our boards, our principals, just sort of... To, I guess almost just remind them that, hey, um, these people have given their own money or they're planning on giving yeah. their own money to us. Wow, like that's amazing. What what an amazing thing for them to do. Let's make sure we show them how incredible we think that is. So I have to sometimes just remind them, like, can you please turn up to this event because so-and-so is going to be here? You haven't met them in person yet. It would be wonderful if you could say thank you in person because you're the head of our organisation or you're the head of our foundation or blah, 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 um, so so that then that donor can have that one-on-one -on -one interaction with that person rather than just me who, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the stuff behind the scenes but making sure that those people also realise, well, we've, we've got to make sure we, we're on the front foot there and, and giving giving that thanks back in that way. So, you know, that that's part of it as well, I think. And, and I think you make a good point, Hannah, that it can't just be one person. You know, it's not just the fundraiser, the philanthropy director, the development director. It's the whole organisation's role to, to cultivate philanthropy and, and, and cultivate and support and steward the people who support us. Because we'll, we'll go. At some point, we're going to leave and do something else, whether it's 5, 10, 15 or 20 years. So that needs to be a continuing culture, just like the culture that you put together for how you educate. There needs to be a culture around philanthropy. This is how we treat our donors. This is how we treat our families, our constituencies. So um, I think it's uh, the more you can involve leaders in the school to feel like this is something that's their, you know, that they're responsible for as well, the better the outcomes you'll, you'll achieve. Thank you, Pamela, and thank you, Jackie and Hannah. I think we are very much um, hitting the end, uh, unless someone has a really uh, emerging question. If not, then you, I don't see anyone and no, nothing in the chat. So thank you, everyone, for um, making the time. I hope you found the session uh, informative and inspiring and helpful to achieve this year's targets. Uh, send us uh, a <laughs> end us of financial year. <laughs> That's right. All the best, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you um, at the conference in September where we can uh, chat more. Yay. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. See you, everyone. See you. And Bye. thank you.